So welcome, everyone. We're really pleased to be able to uh, spend a little bit of time with you this evening. Um, so how we're going to organize the uh, activities here is I will, first of all, introduce the general topic, which will be the idea of using materials to control the immune system in our body to fight cancer. I'll give a little bit of background, and then I'll explain the technology and how it works. And then Mary will speak in the latter half and describe how she's taking the technology and representing it visually. And you can see um, over on the side here uh, some of her artwork in which she's done this, and she'll explain and talk a little bit about this towards the latter part of the program. Unfortunately, about one in every 200 Americans get diagnosed with cancer every year, and one in every four Americans die of cancer. So we clearly need better therapies to treat this collection of diseases that we call cancer. Now, many of you are aware that there are obviously already therapies that are out there, uh, things like surgical resection, chemotherapy, radiation. While these can be very effective, obviously they are not curative for most patients, and we still have too many people dying of cancer. So this has led to the search for new approaches to fight cancer, and the one that I'm going to talk to you about today is called immunotherapy. And the basic premise is that we can train the immune cells in the patient's body to recognize what is distinct about cancer as compared to normal cells and then attack and destroy those cancerous cells. Now this has a variety of potential advantages. Since your immune cells circulate everyone in the body, this could provide a systemic treatment. Any metastases, wherever they may be, could be found and destroyed. Your immune system has memory, so you could prevent recurrence. And then because you're targeting what's different about cancer cells, as compared to normal cells, you would have very minimal damage to normal tissue, unlike things like chemotherapy or radiation. Now, to help you understand the technology that we've been developing, I have to give you a little bit of background on what's called the cancer immunity cycle to start with. Um, so the general idea for immunotherapy is that cancer arises because these cells are mutated, and they make different molecules than normal cells do. Now, normally in a tumor, there's always going to be some cells that are dying. When those cells die, they fragment, and there are immune cells called dendritic cells or antigen-presenting cells that are always trafficking around the body and just picking up whatever they find. Now, these cells will pick up some of these mutated fragments from the cancer cells. They will then traffic them to a lymph node where they'll talk to other immune cells called T cells and more or less educate or train those cells what to recognize in terms of the differences between cancerous and normal cells. Those T cells will then traffic throughout the body, and wherever they find the signature of what they're trained to identify, in this case back in the tumor, they then can attack and destroy those cells. Now, this cycle is presumably occurring all the time. However, obviously, it's not highly effective. People wouldn't get cancer and wouldn't die of cancer. So this has led research to try to study what goes wrong. Why does this cycle actually not function more effectively? And one of the key issues that has been determined is that the T cells, or the immune cells, when they make it into the tumor, they're actively inhibited. Tumor cells actually stop the T cells from doing their job. Now, once scientists understood the mechanisms behind this, then it led to the possibility of coming up with drug therapies that could prevent, basically block the inhibition, and allow the T cells to do their job. And this is something called checkpoint blockade therapy that many of you have heard about. Now, the really pivotal piece of data that got everyone really excited about this idea uh, it was published a few years ago. Uh, it was a 
pivotal clinical trial. Steve Hody was the principal physician running this trial. And this shows survival of patients that were treated with this new drug. And this was when stage four melanoma patients, a disease that until that point had been considered to be incurable. And what you can appreciate is about 20% of the patients here survived for a long period of time and actually continued to survive. So they were effectively cured. So what this showed is you could take one of these drugs and you could take patients that otherwise would all die and now about 20% of them would live. So this really lit the cancer field on fire. Every major pharmaceutical company, lots of biotechs, are developing new drugs to try to do the similar types of things. So it's a very exciting time in cancer research. However, what most of you probably notice is that while 20% of the people actually have been cured here, 80% uh, of the people were not. So still the vast majority of cancer patients aren't benefiting from these new drugs. And when we look and try to understand what's happening here, what appears to be the problem is that in these 80% of the patients that don't get any benefit from the therapy, they don't have enough immune cells responding to the cancer in the first place. So maybe what we need to do then is come up with a strategy to generate more immune cells that can respond to cancer and then combine them with these drugs that make them work more effectively. So this has then led us in many groups to now move to kind of the front end of this cycle where the immune responses are first generated. And the general idea now is perhaps we should develop some therapeutic vaccine that can generate a really potent immune response. Now, we're all generally familiar with prophylactic vaccines that we get the, you know, the flu vaccine to prevent flu. We're not talking about that type of vaccine. Here we're talking about a vaccine that you give to somebody who already has the disease and can help clear or eliminate the disease. So that's the general concept I want to talk to you about today. This idea that we could actually develop a vaccine that would help patients who already have cancer uh, eliminate the disease. We were not the first people to think of this idea. This idea had actually been explored quite broadly for a number of years. And there's actually proof of principle that this could work actually quite effectively. This particular approach I'm going to describe to you to generate more immune cells, they isolate immune cells from a patient that has cancer. They then uh, train those cells in a lab how to recognize the cancer and multiply those cells and then reinfuse them back into that same patient. And the idea is that then they can generate this really robust immune response. And this approach actually has gone all the way through clinical trials and is FDA approved for the treatment of prostate cancer. Now, while it's been successful, it only leads so far to about a four-month extension of life. You're happy to get four more months if you're dying of cancer, but you'd certainly like to get a lot more than four months. It's really expensive because you're doing all this manipulation of patient cells outside the body, and it's a pretty complex technology and regulation. When we began to think about this, uh, we realized that if this approach were to be used really broadly and used to treat millions of cancer patients every year, it would lead to a new industry in the United States that would look like this, where you'd have people in bunny suits in clean rooms growing up individual patient cells. And why this could be a real challenge is because there will be no economy of scale. Each patient cells would have to be manufactured individually in its own manufacturing facility. So we could never make up lots of cells at once and use them to treat many people. So it's going to be very difficult for this strategy to really scale and be used to treat lots and lots of cancer patients. So what we began to think about is perhaps we could transform this view of cancer vaccines to this view, where instead of having people in 
bunny suits manipulating cells in a lab. Instead, we could design a little piece of plastic that we could place in a patient's body and would do all of the same biology, but now do it inside the patient's body. Now, to give you a little sense of how this would work, uh, we've made a little video. And the basic idea is these immune cells normally don't really recognize the tumor very well and more or less just kind of pass it by when they see it. But now, if we make these little pieces of plastic that are about the size of a baby aspirin tablet, uh, we then place them underneath the skin, and they contain a drug that will then leach out over time, these purple agents. Uh, they will then bind to immune cells in the surrounding tissue and attract those cells. And they'll actually crawl right into the device. And once they're inside the device, we can train them how to recognize cancer, and they can then leave. They can then start to traffic through the lymphatics that exist in the body, as seen here. And then ultimately, they'll end up in a draining lymph node. And once they're in a lymph node, they can talk to other immune cells, like T cells, and educate them how to recognize cancer. Those cells can then proliferate, multiply, and begin to traffic around the body. And now these cells, once they're appropriately trained, the idea is when they then encounter cancerous cells and tumors, they now can effectively destroy those. Now, some of the appealing features of this is these cells will traffic throughout the whole body. So wherever metastases might exist, they can go and find, and you'll have memory. And then finally, at the end of the day, the device itself will dissolve away, leaving nothing permanently behind, except a changed immune system. When we first started thinking about how to do this, one of the questions was, well, you know, what should this device look like that's going to accomplish this? One of the things we knew is that cells had to be able to traffic in and out. We decided to put holes in it, but how big should the holes be? So this is a really simple experiment that one of the PhD students did, where she designed a system where we'd have precisely sized holes that roughly scale from about a really thin human hair to a pretty thick human hair. And what you can see is these green cells move around really easily here, but here they can't move very well. So it told us we wanted to have lots of holes and holes of about this size, about the size of a thick human hair. Now, that would allow the cells to crawl in and out, but how are we going to train them what to recognize and how to destroy cancerous cells? Now, each person's mutations are distinct, so it's difficult to have a set of basically tools or training that you can give cells in many different patients. So we decided in the initial step to make this patient-specific, and what we do is we take a biopsy from a tumor, we turn that into a powder. We just process it and turn it into like something that looks like coffee. It's a freeze-dried powder. And then we incorporate that into the device. The first piece of data we generated that got us really excited about the possibility that this could really be useful is shown here. And this was work of Omar Ali. And this is in a, the standard preclinical model for melanoma. And in these animals, what happens is if they're not treated, they all die within a few weeks. So what's really striking is if we vaccinated these animals two times by placing this little piece of plastic under their skin, and these are animals that already had melanoma, uh, you saw those animals, would about 50% would go on to be long-term survivors, and you'd see complete regression of the established tumors. So when we first found this, this was an unprecedented finding that in a model as rigorous as this one, you could get complete regression of melanoma with a therapeutic vaccine. And what it showed us is actually that this strategy can't uh, only replace those cell strategies I talked about before. It seems to actually work a lot better 
when we do the biology in the body instead of doing it outside the body and then try to move cells back later. Right around when we were doing the first studies, we're also founding something called the Wies Institute that was mentioned earlier. And one of the goals of the Wies Institute is to take inventions out of the lab and put them into the real world to see if they actually can make an impact. So we decided that this project could make a really good project for the Wies to pursue. So we collaborated with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute here in Boston to develop what we call WDVAX for Wies Dana-Farber vaccine, which is intended to treat a stage four melanoma patients. As an academic entity, the Dana-Farber and the Wies did all the preclinical studies that we needed to file for approval from the FDA to start a clinical trial, which now we're running today. Now, it's too early in the clinical testing for me to really know whether or not this is going to be truly successful in humans. Um, about 17 patients have been treated at this point in time. Uh, but we are starting to get some indications that perhaps this might be really effective. Now, we have, in the meantime, gone back in the lab and done some animal studies to see if there really is a synergy between these two approaches. And so here we're back looking at an animal model. And again, if we don't treat the animals, they'll all die relatively quickly. In this case, we purposely made the vaccine not as effective so we could see if we could improve upon it. So here's the vaccine. It made these animals live a little bit longer. But if we combine the vaccine with those checkpoints, now we get complete regression in a pretty big fraction, suggesting there really is a synergy between these approaches that we generate an immune response and the drugs that let those immune cells really function well. We're waiting to see what happens in the clinical trial. We're moving forward, assuming that this general approach is going to be broadly useful. And we're trying to think about how to improve it. Now, one of the limitations of the therapy right now is that we have to actually implant it in a patient. So a patient comes in for an office visit. There's a small incision that's made. And then it's, the device is placed under the skin, and a couple of sutures are put over it. That works great at the Dana-Farber, but it probably will not work well in your typical you know, community setting where many patients will receive care. So what we'd like to do is develop injectable versions that can be readily introduced via needle under a patient's skin. This is an image of what one of these injectable devices look like. It's a microscopic view, and you can appreciate that it has all these holes in it. Again, similar to the last system that I showed you. The difference, though, is with this device is that it's actually made in such a way that it's really elastic. So here you see one of the devices and some forceps that are being used to crush it. And you can appreciate as soon as the forceps release, it's going to spring back to its original size and shape. So what this enables us to do is to load these into a syringe, inject them via needle, and they get dramatically deformed going through the needle. But as soon as it comes out the other end, within a couple hundred milliseconds, it goes back to its original size and shape. So it has shape memory. And this is the work of uh, uh, Sandeep Koshi and Ting Shi, who are current PhD students in the laboratory. We can take these devices, and we can use them the same way as we are using those implantable devices. So we can introduce these under the skin. We can bring in immune cells. We can then train those immune cells. And this is an image of one of these cryogels uh, actually in the lab with one of these target immune cells, these dendritic cells. And you can get a little sense of why they're called dendritic cells. They have all these extensions going on. We've explored our approach to vaccination very broadly in solid tumors. One of the things we're beginning to look at as well is blood cancers and whether this general strategy could be effective there. Now, we're particularly interested in this in the context of acute myeloid leukemia, uh, which is a really devastating type of cancer uh, that involves stem cells in the body. Now, as many of you may be aware, that chemotherapy is the standard of care for patients that have AML. Uh, this is actually quite effective at causing regression 
Um, but there's relapse in over 80% of those patients, and the five-year survival is only about 20 or 25%. So what we're beginning to explore with Nassar Shah, postdoctoral fellow, and David Scadden, who's his co-mentor, a hematologist at Mass General, as well as the same general idea could be used in diseases like this. So they're taking, uh, Nasarg is taking these cryogels. He's introducing these into animal models of AML. And what you can appreciate from these, again, survival curves is that, again, in this particular model, no treatment, all the animals die of AML. If he uses chemotherapy alone, uh, there's basically a benefit, but all the animals relapse and they all die. But if he combines the standard of care chemotherapy with vaccination, now all the animals are cured. So it looks like this approach may be useful not just for solid tumors, but also blood cancers as well. Now, the other noteworthy thing I should mention here is that we're also beginning to explore other ways of training the immune cells to recognize cancer. So I mentioned earlier that in the clinical trial, we're taking a biopsy of a tumor and then kind of capturing everything that's in it. Here, what Nasarg is doing is taking advantage of the fact that in a uh, quite a high fraction of patients with AML, they have an overexpression of a particular protein uh, called WT1. So here we're actually using one specific antigen, it's called, in the device instead of personalizing it and finding that it's broadly effective actually in a number of these animals. I mentioned that we're trying to get away from doing cell therapies where we have to manipulate cells outside the body, but those therapies can be useful in certain contexts. So one of the other things that we're finding is we can take these injectable gels we can actually load them with cells and actually make those cell therapies function much better. So here's just an image of some cells uh, that are basically been seeded into one of these devices in cross-section. So these little round things are the cells. The green is the actual gel. And you can see that after over 24 hours, the cells begin to attach and spread and proliferate. And then we can transplant these cells and actually make them function quite a bit better. And this is some work that C.D. Benchera had been doing. All the work I've described until now, though, we have the strategy of we make something, and then we got to get it in the body. And then how do we do that? Well, what Eileen and Jane Yu in the laboratory proposed a couple years ago is to do something quite different, which they said, well, why don't we actually build the device in the human body? So why don't we start with particles that are small enough to be injected and then have those assemble once they're under the skin in the body? The approach they took was to use mesoporosilica microparticles you could just mix those with saline. You can do a needle injection. And then as the saline carrier dissipates, then these particles collapse on each other to form, again, a three-dimensional porous material that we can then bring the cells in. Now, kind of the analogy for here is if you, for the people that are a little older in the audience, you remember wooden matches. Um, if you take wooden matches and you just kind of mix them up, uh, they'll basically form kind of a porous three-dimensional structure. And we're doing the same thing, just at a very different size scale. Now, when we inject these particles, and here's an image of what these particles look like, that immune cells will infiltrate and basically fill all the space. And so we can initiate all the same types of programming activities that we have been doing already with the other two types of materials. Where we're going currently with this is there's something called neoantigens, where some of you may be familiar with the idea that patients who have cancer are getting a biopsy of their tumor, they're getting that sequenced. So you actually can identify all the mutations, and you can then predict what are the mutations that are likely to lead to effective vaccination. So that's being pursued clinically now over the Dana-Farber. And so where this is going is to combine these particles that we're generating with pools of antigens that would be specific for each patient. These neoantigens or some of these overexpressed things that I described earlier for the AML, 
and then creating patient-specific vaccines that can be injected to then generate this response I've been describing. Everything I've described has been a cell response, a T cell response. When we vaccinate, you also generate oftentimes antibodies, and the antibodies can be very effective in a variety of different contexts. What uh, Eileen and, and Max Ons and some of the others in the lab have been able to show is that we can do a single injection of these mesoporosilica microparticles with antigens and generate very high concentrations of antibodies that are durable for at least a year. So it looks like this may be a very broadly useful system to generate not just cell responses, but also antibody responses in the body. So where are we going right now? Well, one thing we're exploring is whether or not this concept is going to be broadly useful for many types of cancer in the body. So we have activities now uh, in the lab in many of these different types of cancer to explore whether this concept can be useful there. If we have a system that we can generate really effective immune responses, perhaps it might be useful in other contexts. So we're beginning to explore whether we can generate therapeutic vaccines against things like chronic infectious disease, things like HIV, or perhaps antibiotic-resistant threats. And then, if we can more or less pick any agent we want and generate a really effective immune response against it, it opens up a lot of possibilities for other types of vaccines in the future. So for example, uh, we're currently trying to develop a reproductive vaccine that could be a single-shot vaccine that would induce uh, sterility to dogs and cats. Uh, we're beginning to explore the idea of using these strategies to generate vaccines against addictive substances to help people that are addicts be able to kick the habit. If we can generate immune responses that are really robust, maybe we can also turn immune responses off. So we're exploring whether or not we can actually use this concept to treat autoimmune disease and also generate immune responses that might be actually helpful in the context of regenerative medicine. So this general idea of manipulating the immune response may be broadly useful in many areas of medicine. Now, I'm going to finish up my part of uh, the presentation tonight just by mentioning that all the work I described today has been done in really close collaboration with Glenn Drainoff, who was at the Dana-Farber and has now moved on to head global immunotherapies and oncology for Novartis. Uh, the work was started by Omar Ali, who then moved to the Wies Institute to take this to a clinical trial, and Ed Doherty played a really key role in that. Our collaborators at the Dana, Steve and Jerry, and then I described a little bit of work we're doing in collaboration with Dave Scadden, and the lab gets funding from a variety of different sources. So I'm gonna wrap up my part now, and now Mary's gonna describe how she's taken this technology and tried to actually visualize it and create an artistic representation of it, which you see over there, which she'll describe a little bit of kind of how she's done it, what it means, and uh, the process. Thank you. Over the years, I've always been intrigued by the research that Dave does. As an artist, I am especially fascinated by the microscopic images of cells and materials. There is such beauty in biology and nature that cannot be seen by the naked eye. This project has given Dave and I an opportunity to work together in creating a presentation that explores the interface between art and science. And it gives you an opportunity to experience a microscopic view inside the WD vaccine. When deciding how to artistically represent the technology behind the melanoma vaccine, I chose to focus on what happens inside the polymer structure of the vaccine device itself. I represent the technology in six panels that have been put together to create a mixed media piece of sculpture, which you see over there. In creating the initial concept for this design, 
I chose to keep the round shape of the device and incorporate that into many of the materials I used. I wanted to represent the steps that take place inside the device while also making it an aesthetically pleasing piece of sculpture that could stand alone. This gives you an overview of the panels all side by side. This is panel one. This panel depicts the device itself. The center circle is the device. Surrounding it are elements that complement the tablet shape and help to bring your focus to the center. You'll observe that similar elements have been used in all panels for the same purpose. This represents the device with tumor protein trapped inside the device along with a drug to attract immune cells. I am using red coloration throughout the device to represent the tumor protein and the drug. In panel three, immune cells in an immature state come into the device and pick up tumor protein. The immune cells are represented here on the outer perimeter of the device using white circular structures. Once the immune cells pick up the tumor protein, they become activated. Activation is represented by a change in color to orange and a morphing of cell shape to a more extended dendritic structure as compared to the immature cells. As you can see, there is a mixture of immature and mature cells at this stage. All of the immature cells become activated on panel five. The mature cells then leave the device and travel to the lymph nodes to generate an immune response to destroy other cancer cells in the body. In panel six, the device breaks down and is absorbed into the body. This is represented with the structure fragmenting and parts being lost. I'm gonna talk a bit now about the materials I used and the process of making this piece of art. The vaccine device was constructed out of chicken wire formed into a three-dimensional network. This is coated with modeling paste, which gives the structure more depth and the correct coloration. The first level of the circular structures in which I surrounded the device is shown here in the first stage of its fabrication. You may recall I utilized these to focus attention and frame the device itself. Modeling paste is used again in combination with pumice stone to create a visually interesting border. I continue the theme of circular structures framing the device at a second level. Painting the panels and creating a circular groove in the wood to hold a hoop, which you'll see in a few slides. Here you can see how I bring together the first two circular elements to focus attention. Wine barrel hoops were used as a design element to create a dramatic effect, focusing further your attention on the device. The hoops were wired onto the board using screws and copper wires. The cells themselves were created using bottle caps, which I painted either white or orange to provide a visual cue for the state of the cell. A second bottle cap underlying the first was flattened with a hammer to provide a border for each cell. A glass dome was then placed to accent the color and to magnify the texture of the paint. Each panel was mounted on a pedestal in a back-to-back -back manner to provide the progression of the vaccine activity. 
The panels were attached using metal pipes, and there is a copper netting draped on each panel that is also representative of the porous nature of the device. As you can see on the center pedestal, there is an actual human cancer vaccine from the very first batch that were manufactured. Hopefully you've obtained a good understanding of the technology from both Dave's scientific explanation and my artistic representation. We welcome you to spend a few minutes viewing the sculpture when we are done here tonight. Finally, I need to make some acknowledgments. First, Dave and I would like to thank Dave Edwards, Le Laboratoire founder, for the opportunity to present here tonight. Second, I want to thank a number of Dave's researchers in the lab who taught an artist a bit about science. In particular, I'd like to thank Eileen, Ting, Maxence, Omer, and James Weaver. Thank you.